Hello, I am Kevin Smith, and you have found the Terminator Training Show, your one-stop shop for no BS training, nutrition, and health information. For more, please go to TerminatorTraining.com. Thank you for tuning in, and enjoy the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Terminator Training Show. I am Kevin Smith. Today's episode is going to be a Q&A episode from a few different Q&As. Obviously, if you listened in to last week's episode, you know that I did a single topic on building your running base. So I've got some questions to catch up to. We will see how many I get to today. This episode is going to be airing just before Christmas. So hope everyone has an awesome Christmas. Hope everyone gets some time off with their family and friends and enjoys some awesome food and awesome socialization and time with your family, time with your friends, if in fact it is a good time of year for you for that, which I understand it isn't for everyone. I was planning on going up to visit family this year with my wife up in Maine. That's where I'm from. But my dog had other plans. So we were going to get surgery on her knee in January, but a slot opened up about two weeks ago now to get her knee completely fixed, basically her, she's a black lab pit bull mix. And it's very common for those dogs to have knee issues like AC, basically the dog version of the ACL. She had a partial tear in the other one. We had that fixed a couple of years ago. And then sure enough, which is very common, the other one kind of blew out. So we had surgery. She had surgery a couple of weeks ago. She's doing great. But if we went home, we would have to either leave her here with a dog sitter or we would have to bring both of our dogs and drive. And we don't want to do either of those because she's just kind of, she needs a lot of attention. She can't really move around much on her own. She needs to be on a leash at all times and just would be a little bit too much. So we're just staying put here. Nothing big planned, but still should be nice to enjoy Christmas. Just my wife and I and the pups. So looking forward to that. Additionally, if you're listening to this, the day it comes out all the way up till New Year's, you will be able to hop on TerminatorTraining.com and get access to my programs, which will be on sale until, all the way up till New Year's. So it's my winter, Christmas, New Year's holiday sale. And you can take advantage of that if you'd like. There will be no code necessary. And... As of this recording, I don't know what the discount will be. However, if you follow me on Instagram, I will post it there. If you're a newsletter follower of mine, I haven't done a newsletter in a very long time, but I will be sending out a newsletter here in the next couple of days with some details. But yeah, all PDF programs will be some sort of percent off. Haven't decided yet, but it's probably going to be a pretty good deal. So take advantage of that and get yourself a program for the new year. That's really about it for updates, but we're going to get into today's questions. First one being tips for training to improve the ACFT ball throw. Yeah, so this is the demise of a lot of people. The ACFT, for those who are not aware, consists of three repetition deadlift. The max is 340. A set of two minutes of hand release push-ups where you bring your hands all the way out to a T and you have to do 60 of them to max it. There is a three-minute plank. There is a ball throw, which is this question. A sprint drag carry, which is basically 90 seconds of sprinting, dragging, and carrying things. 
90, I think a minute 30 something, depending on your age group is the max. And then it finishes off with a two mile run. And a lot of people struggle to max it. And I would say probably in most cases, those who like almost max it, but don't, I would say in most cases, it's the ball throw. And if you are maxing the ACFT other than the ball throw, you probably have the ability to max the ball throw. It's probably a technique thing. However, if you are struggling with a lot of other events, like you can't max the deadlift or something like that, then you probably need to build some strength. So we'll talk about basically a few different things that I think will help. Obviously, listening to me explain it is not going to make you better. You actually have to do some things, implement some things into your training and probably practice it because it's the technique is pretty important. But a lot of people will say you have to build more power and you have to do a lot of jumping, a lot of Olympic lifting, a lot of kettlebell swings, really heavy, powerful kettlebell swings, other power exercises along those lines. And I agree, you do need to have a lot of power. However, if you don't have a base of strength before you start developing that power, or at least in combination with developing that power, training both at the same time, then you are not going to really go anywhere. You can do all the power movements that you want, but if you are not strong enough, in particular, your posterior chain, so your hamstrings, your glutes, your low back, your upper back, basically your entire posterior chain, you need it to be relatively strong. So focus on if you're really coming up way short and your technique isn't all over the place, which I'll get into in a second, then I would really focus on getting strong in the gym. And an added benefit to that is also your deadlift will go up. So maybe you're already maxing the deadlift, but if you're not, good bonus to improving your strength is that that will also go up and you'll be able to max both of those. Uh, once you have a solid foundation of strength, or if you think you already have a solid foundation of strength, like for example, if you can easily, easily max the deadlift, like no problem whatsoever, 340 for three reps, then you're definitely strong enough to start building that power on top of it. And I really like super heavy kettlebell swings. I really like heavier ball throws. I really like box jumps and some other explosive jumps. You can you can do Olympic lifts if you're proficient at them and they don't mess you up. Like you have good form and technique and you do them right. You program them right, but they're not necessary. Um, most people in my experience don't have great technique for Olympic lifts and they're probably the, the cost outweighs the benefit, but those are all options. The big thing for power training though, that almost everybody <laughs> then messes up is that they don't rest long enough. They either do too high reps or they don't rest long enough or both. And when you're training power, you need to rest a long period of time in between sets. And a set is usually going to be anywhere from like one to three, maybe five repetitions at the most. So if you're doing box jumps, for example, and you're doing sets of 15 to 20 and you're jumping down off the box and just going again, that's more cardio than it is power. So you need to rest a long period of time in between, I would say at least two minutes, optimally three to four minutes in between sets. And if you're practicing the ball throw, which a lot of people will go practice the ball throw, maybe they'll do it with a heavier ball, or maybe they'll just do it with the 10 pound ball that is part of the test. They will practice it and they'll do a bunch of reps, but they won't rest anywhere near as long. So they'll throw, they'll walk down to the ball, grab it, throw back or they'll throw back and forth between buddies. You need to be resting a long period of time. If you're gonna go do eight ball throws, for example, that should take you at least 
probably 20 minutes. And that's the thing. It's very time consuming. So you're kind of better off doing power using different tools and different implements, and then maybe practicing the ball throw every so often, especially when a ACFT is coming up to kind of get the technique down and, and get some muscle memory built. But rest long periods of time. If you're out of breath at the end of a set of a power exercise, you're definitely doing it wrong. You need to be able to continue to produce just as much power every single time you do a rep or a set as you did on the first one. And generally speaking, I personally, if I'm doing practice ball throws, say you're using a 10 to 12 to 14 pound medicine ball and you're doing practice ball throws, as soon as you have two in a row that have gone shorter than what your furthest one was. So say, for example, you plan on doing eight and you keep getting with every throw, you keep throwing it a little bit further. Maybe your fifth throw goes, we'll say 12 meters. And then you throw your sixth one and say it goes 11 and a half meters. Sometimes that's just a fluke. You do your rest, you get prepped for another one, and maybe perhaps you throw it a little bit longer the next time. But if you throw another one that is shorter, it's probably because you're fatigued. And at that point, the power training is kind of obsolete. So that's when you just call it off. Doing more is not going to help you. Fighting through extreme fatigue to be more powerful. There's benefits to that. Potentially, if you're an athlete, obviously you have to be powerful throughout the entire game. But if you are literally just trying to improve your ball throw, once you start short, once you get two in a row that are shorter than the ones before, just call it off. So that is basically the power aspect. Technique is the next part. A lot of people will not take advantage of the rules that there are rules as far as how you have to throw it, but there's a certain technique you can use that is not breaking a rule that a lot of people don't do. So you want to really build moment momentum. I have a video of this on my Instagram. It's very old. Um, I'll try and link to it in the show notes, but a lot of people will just start. Basically you're facing away and you have to throw it up over your head and it has to go a certain distance. I can't remember exactly. It's 13 meters or something for max for, I think my age group, but either way you are facing away. You have to throw it you have to let it go at the right time. So that's very important. If you let it go too early, you are going to throw it kind of into the ground. If you let it go too, sorry, if you let it go too early, you're going to throw it really, really high up. It's going to be a pop-up. If you let it go too late, it's going to go into the ground. You have to throw it in the air a certain distance. So a lot of people will just start it right in front of their waist, basically, and just go down and throw. And you're not building up nearly as much power and elastic energy from your musculature as you would be if you started it all the way up above your head. So you're almost starting with the ball completely up over your head and then you're drop, you're basically letting gravity come down and drop it and you're getting all of this built up momentum at the bottom and you have what's called a stretch shortening cycle at the bottom with all your muscles. Think of it as like a squat. If you want to squat as much weight as possible, you're not going to lower it really, really, really slowly in most cases. If you want to build muscle, that's probably a good idea to lower it slowly. But if you want to squat as much as you can, like look at Olympic lifters when they squat, they go down really, really fast and they use that stretch shortening cycle at the bottom to kind of get started on the way back up. If you think of the ball throw the same way, you are letting that momentum build all the way down and then you'll be able to use that momentum in order to propel your arms to start back and let the ball go over your head. So it'll give you a good bit of extra power. Once you have that down, I would watch that video if I were you and just kind of see what it looks like. It's a lot easier to understand when you actually watch it. But 
Once you have that down, practice it a few times. As you're getting close to the test, I definitely have talked about this before. I don't recommend an ACFT dedicated training program. That sounds like I'd rather watch paint dry than follow an ACFT program, but you can identify a couple of events that you're weak at and practice them a little bit as you get closer to the event. And if it's the ball throw for you, practice it a few times and really get that timing down the release point and practice using that extra momentum by bringing the ball over your head. And that should, even if you don't do any of the things I mentioned first and you just do that, you should be able to get an extra few feet at least just by doing that. Once you get it down, of course, your first time, maybe not, but it's going to build a lot more power if you do that. And yeah, you're probably going to throw the ball further. Next question. How often should you change up your lifting split? I am of the opinion as far as split, you don't ever have to change your lifting split up. That being said, things get stale sometimes and it can be nice to change lifting split. You know, if you're doing push pull legs forever, and that's kind of getting old. You can go upper lower. You can go anterior posterior. You can go kind of like a bro split, like an educated bro split, kind of like my bro split plus program, which is on train heroic. You can do full body. Really a lot of different splits work really well. So technically you can just follow the same split forever. And also I think this person is, is more asking how often should you change things up in your program, change other variables. So split is just one of them. Um, and it's not really the most important ones at all. Um, really whatever split you can do that you enjoy and look forward to that allows you to hit each muscle group that you need to hit with enough volume per week, but you can change other variables up like rep ranges. You can change the exercises. You can change kind of what you're focused on. But I personally, for most people and most goals, I like to keep things the same for a while, especially if we're talking about like for hypertrophy, if you're trying to just gain muscle, you can keep, keep things the same for a long time. For some people, you're better off keeping things the same until something stops working. Either you hit a plateau or an exercise is causing you some issues. You, they're starting to sneak in and you start feeling like a little bit banged up. You can definitely change the exercise, maybe the same movement pattern. You just change the exercise slightly. Other people, a lot of times type A personality type individuals like to change things up more often. And even though I don't think it's optimal to change things every six to eight weeks, in most cases, it becomes optimal for that person because you're better off changing things to not make it to, to keep it from getting stale than you are just, you know, I know I'm supposed to do this, even though I'm dreading going to the gym now and I don't want to train but I know I'm not supposed to change things up. So all that being said, you don't want to change things up too frequently. A lot of people will change things up way too often every couple of weeks, or they'll program hop, go back and forth between a bunch of different programs, or they will, they're still bought into the whole muscle confusion thing, which has completely been debunked like over a decade, probably multiple decades ago. You want to keep things the same for long enough so that you can A, get good at the movement, and continue to practice that movement. So if you're doing something different every single week, you're not going to get good at any of the movements that you're doing because it's always going to be novel to you. And B, another big reason is because you want to be able to track your progress and see if you're progressing. If you're always doing a different press every single week, say one week it's 
dumbbell press. Next week, it's closed grip bench press. Next week, it's regular bench press. The following week, it's a machine press. And you're not going to be able to really track whether you're progressing or not. A lot of people will say, well, well, I'm getting sore. Well, you're getting sore because of novelty. You're not necessarily getting sore because you're doing something effective. So you want to keep things the same long enough that you can track progress and that you can build skill in that movement. Generally speaking, for more advanced trainees, I like to keep things the same longer, but at the same time, you know, if someone's getting sick of it, someone's getting bored, the program's getting stale, nothing wrong with changing it up. I would say at least every six weeks. And that is again for like a hypertrophy, hypertrophy thing. And as far as changes, you don't need to change all that much. You can change rep ranges. You can change certain exercises. So maybe last six weeks you were doing a reverse lunge with a deficit for your like single leg movement. Maybe the next six weeks you do a split squat. So it's basically the same movement pattern. It's just a different movement. It's working the same muscles. It's a single leg squat movement, but it's a change enough that it's going to be a little bit novel. It's going to keep things interesting and it's still a very effective way to train. Or perhaps maybe you've been doing flat dumbbell bench press or flat barbell bench press and your shoulder starts talking to you and you know that generally when that happens and you switch to an incline dumbbell press, your shoulders start feeling much better. So that's another example, just another one horizontal press for another horizontal press. You don't necessarily need to change every single exercise. You don't need to change rep ranges drastically. You don't need to completely change your split. If you like your split, keep what, keep going with what you got. If you don't like your split, you can change it, but it can be very tempting to always chase the next shiny object. And it's not a good idea if you want results. If you just want to have fun training and you don't really care about results, you don't really care about being able to track progress. You are just chasing like fun times in the gym and you like getting sore, then you can change stuff more often. But I'm a big fan of running things into the ground with a caveat that some people get sick of training the same thing over and over. So I usually compromise. And even though it's not perfectly optimal, I'll change things a little bit more often every six to eight. 10 weeks, something like that. Next question. Are you faster now or before selection? I was drastically faster before selection than I currently am, but also I was a few different things are different now than then. So obviously I'm older. I'm 12 years older, 13, eh, 12 or 13 years older than I was back then. I am about 25 pounds heavier, about 195. Now I was about 170 when I went to selection soaking wet. I was just a big time runner. Um, and that's another bit, big difference is I was running a hell of a lot more mileage and days per week. And I was rucking a lot more. So my main focus was prepping for selection. So that's what my training kind of entailed. My training now is a lot more like sound as far as good training is concerned. I probably knew about 2% of what I know now about human performance and strength and conditioning. So I didn't have the best program ever, but I do did know that, Hey, if I'm going to go be asked to do all these things at selection, run, ruck, etc., then I better do those things. So I definitely, when I got out of high school, I did a lot of endurance style training and I am just more genetically prone to be an endurance guy. So yeah, I was significantly faster back then than I am now, but also now I go on three-ish runs per week, probably 
90% of them are in zone two. And I, if I do speed work, it's not very structured. It's kind of just like a fart lick or some sort of tempo run. And I don't take it as seriously. I, I really just run mostly because I want to be like within striking distance of being pretty damn fast. But I honestly mostly just run for mental health and physical health. And I just enjoy running. So for a five mile, I probably was four to five minutes faster when I went to selection than I am now. For like a 12 mile ruck, I'm probably 20 minutes faster, or I was probably 25 minutes faster than I am now. But I do know like now that I have the ability to program properly and know a lot more about recovery, I take sleep seriously. I don't drink alcohol anymore. I probably in a few months could get pretty close to how fast I was back then, even without losing all 20 plus pounds of weight that I had that I basically that I've gained since then. So although I don't think I could be as fast at 195 pounds as I was at 170 pounds, I could probably be pretty close. But yeah, I just have totally different goals now. Training for selection is not like a super longevity friendly way to train. It shouldn't be something you do all the time as like your normal training. So yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll take up running for speed again. Maybe I'll start entering some road races. Who knows? Probably not, but we'll see. Next question, going to selection with lower scores or delaying selection for higher scores? Yeah, so put differently, should I, even though my running times and rucking times, basically my performance metrics are not quite where they should be to go to selection, should I still go or should I delay when I go to get better, to improve my performance so that my scores are higher? And I would definitely lean towards the latter. A lot of people do go to selection once and they don't make it for whatever reason and they get asked to go again. And that's totally fine. If that happens to you, not a huge deal. Yeah, it sucks to have to go twice. I always say selection is a great experience. It's an experience of a lifetime, but it's not something you want to do twice. But if you have to, you have to. However, if you know you are kind of flirting with potentially not meeting the standards and you have the option to move your date, I highly suggest moving your date until you are confident that you can go and comfortably meet slash exceed the standards. Because if you're kind of like right on the line right now, especially like the first week is just gate week. And that's where you have to write, do your high performance, like fast rucks, fast runs. You have to crush the PT test, obstacle course, all that. If you're already on the fence for those and you're not sure if you can do well at that, you're going to really struggle later on when fatigue sets in and you're two and a half weeks in and you are sleep deprived, you're calorie deprived, and you're tired and you're smoked and you have to do team week, which is by far the most physically demanding week of all three weeks. So to me, it makes sense to prolong how long you have to train if you can and delay your date going in, not being sure of whether you prepped enough or whether you're going to be capable enough to do well is just not a great feeling to have. Um, I think there's a later question on this and like, how do you know you're doing enough or something like that? And you, you really don't, you never know until obviously you get the outcome. But if you're kind of on the fence, you're like, not sure if your preparation has resulted in you getting to where you need to be, that can be a really, it's not a feeling that you want. You want to be very confident going in that you prepared and that you did everything you possibly could to prep yourself and that you are 
definitely in prime shape to crush all of the required events. So that would be my best advice to you is to, even though it sucks, yeah, you're going to have to prolong it a little bit, but you're better off going when you're sure that you can go crush it. That way, hopefully you get picked up on the first try. Next question, is a treadmill an effective use of time or should I just use an echo bike for the winter? I live in Michigan. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of comparing apples to oranges, although they're both ways to do cardio. Doing it on a treadmill is going to be different. If you want to get good at running, then you should definitely use the treadmill. You should also probably run outside a little bit, but you can get good at running. You can get, you can improve your running by running indoors on a treadmill. And I understand if it's like negative temperatures outside, it's kind of overkill to go outside and run. Totally understand. And yes, you can use a treadmill for that. Should you use the echo bike instead? That just depends. If you just want to improve your conditioning in general, and you want to improve your cardiovascular health and you potentially, maybe you don't like running or when you run it beats you up a lot, then yeah, absolutely use the echo bike or you could use both, but it really just depends on the specificity with which you want to approach your training. So if you want to get good at running, got to run, you can do it on a treadmill, no big deal. If you are just looking to get in general decent shape, you can use any cardio machine you want. Whatever you prefer is probably the, the best option, or you can choose from multiple ones. You can go back and forth between a few different cardio machines. If you're doing like a zone two session, I really like that as well. But yeah, if you want to get really good at the echo bike, you should definitely do the echo bike, but doing indoor cardio, totally fine. It really just comes down to your preferences and your goals. Um, so hopefully that helps. Next question. What is the deciding factor in seated versus lying hamstring curls when programming? Yeah. So if you follow some of my programs, you probably noticed that I have some, a combination between seated and lying hamstring curls, but I definitely favor seated hamstring curls. The main reason is a couple of reasons. I think that the seated hamstring curl is harder to cheat and kind of a little bit easier to do with good technique. The lying hamstring curl, a lot of people will lie down and like their butt just flies up into the air um, every single rep. So they're A, it's not good for your back at all. And B, it's just becoming more of a compound lift. And the benefits to a hamstring curl is that it should be an isolation lift and just work your hamstrings. I personally like the seated curl better for that reason, but also because it places more tension on the length and position. When you are in hip flexion. So you're in a seated position, basically your torso and your legs are forming a 90 degree angle that will put a little bit more stretch on the hamstrings. And therefore, when you start the movement, you're in the length you're more in the lengthened position than you are when you're laying down. So you, most studies and data and just personal experience show that favoring the lengthened position of any muscle group pretty much is more favorable for muscle growth because you want to get a good loaded stretch on muscles. So the seated version of hamstring curls will give you more length and tension. And even more so if you do like the lean forward version of seated hamstring curls. So instead of like pushing against the handles, pushing your back into the pad, which is like the ideal way to do them. But if you want also to get a little bit more length and tension, you can lean forward and basically you're going to feel a stretch in your hamstrings as soon as you lean forward. So you're getting a couple inches more length and tension 
And you're sacrificing a little bit of stability by doing this. So I wouldn't do this every single time you do hamstring curls. I usually do like two sets of standard hamstring curls. And then the last set, I'll lower the load a little bit because you're less stable. You generally are probably, and the range of motion is a little longer. You're probably not going to be able to use as much load, but I like to do a little bit of both. And there have been studies to show that seated hamstring curls are a little bit more effective for muscle growth than lying hamstring curls. And also I just like the lift better and I feel like it's easier to set up less hard to cheat. A lot of people will think that the lying hamstring curl places more of a stretch on the hamstrings, but it's usually because they are not doing one or both of them properly. It's just when you're lying down, basically you're in a little bit of hip flexion, but not all that much. If you think of lying down face down in a hamstring curl machine, very little hip flexion. So you're just not able to fully lengthen your hamstrings like you are on a seated version. So if you feel like you're not feeling a stretch on the seated hamstring curl, like in that starting position, it's probably because you're not going up high enough. The machines usually have an option to adjust the level of the leg pad. And some people will start it like way down low. And basically they'll just do like that last probably two thirds of the rep. So they're missing out on the length and position anyway. And it's just making the lift less effective. Yes, hamstring curls are a short overload exercise, technically speaking. And if you're doing like stiff-legged deadlifts also, or RDLs for hamstrings, then you absolutely don't necessarily need to worry about that length and position of a hamstring curl by doing them seated. But, you know, if that's your only hamstring exercise of the day, for example, I would recommend doing them seated. And oftentimes when I am programming and there's another hamstring exercise later in that session, I'll just have lying hamstring curls. And then later on, they'll do like stiff legged deadlifts or something like that. But oftentimes when it is the only hamstring curl exercise of the day or hamstring exercise of the day, I'll do the curl version. So, or the seated version. So hopefully that clears it up. Honestly, kind of splitting hairs, whatever you prefer, whatever you you feel more comfortable with is probably totally fine. But I certainly give seated hamstring curls the itch. Next question. Just started a lean bulk around 3,500 calories. I'm up two pounds on the second day. Should I decrease my calories? No, absolutely not. Not after two days. So this is actually pretty common. One of the main reasons that people struggle bulking, especially if you're very attached to being lean and maybe you've been lean for a long time or, or maybe you used to be overweight and you just kind of recently got lean and you're a little bit scared of gaining the weight back, but you know you want to gain muscle. So you go in a bulk. The main reason, not maybe not the main reason, but one of the reasons that it's often unsuccessful is because of this. They'll see weight go up at a rate that they don't want to see and they will snap right back out of the bulk. You got to give your body some time to actually adjust. So basically what happens is if you were eating at maintenance or maybe slightly below maintenance, maybe you're at a cut, the way I recommend bulking, generally speaking, the first macro I like to manipulate is usually going to be carbohydrates. Unless you were eating very, very high protein before, then I would probably drop some protein just so you're not super full and you're able to eat enough. But generally speaking, if you're eating around a gram of protein per pound of body weight, I like to use manipulate carbohydrates first. And when you add carbohydrates, your muscles store more glycogen. Glycogen 
is what you use for like high intensity exercise. That's why like, it's really hard to do hard lifting or any sort of high intensity conditioning when you're on a low carb diet for, for a lot of people, not necessarily everybody, but when your glycogen stores increase, glycogen also holds water. So your body is going to hold more water. Now this isn't like water retention necessarily. Like it's not bloat. You're not going to be all bloated, but when you have more glycogen in your muscles, you also have more water in your muscles where every gram of glycogen that you are storing, you're also storing three to four grams of water. So you can gain significant amounts of water weight, or you can lose significant amounts of water weight in short periods of time. So since it's only been two days, chances are this weight that you've gained is almost purely water weight. In two days, you can't gain much muscle, you can't gain much fat, you can't gain like a lot of tissue in two days. So your body is just kind of adjusting to the fact that you're eating more calories than you're burning. And that's exactly what you should be doing in a bulk. I would guess that over the next couple of days, it's probably going to even out and probably stay at around one or two pounds over from when you started. And once you're on a bulk, I mean, if you're gaining half a pound to a pound per week, that's exactly where you should be. So generally speaking, anytime I make a change to somebody's nutrition, whether it is adding calories, dropping calories, maybe going to maintenance, I like to give it at least 10 days for all the adjustments to happen because maybe you gain two pounds and then you drop your calories back down. And then three, four days later, you're back down to two pounds below where you even started. Super duper common. So definitely don't freak out. Uh, give it a few days, give it 10 days. If you are still two plus pounds up after 10 days, maybe dial it back a little bit, but probably not. It's probably going to slow down a little bit as you continue. But before you make adjustments to your calories, I would give it some time. No need to uh, reverse back or anything like that. If you, if it's 10 days later and you're up four or five pounds, then yeah, I would probably drop two to 300 calories and go from there and again, give that a few days because you don't want to be gaining four or five pounds every 10 days. But if you're just gain, if you're up two pounds and it just kind of stays there and you're still the same after 10 days, you're probably good to go. I would just hold what you got. And then eventually you're going to stall out a little bit because your metabolism speeds up as you bulk for a long time. And you're probably going to have to add onto that over time. So, and the same type of thing happens in reverse when you are cutting. Next question, why do two heavy sets over four to eight sets building up to a top set? Yeah, so if you followed any of my programs, especially hypertrophy programs, you've probably noticed that I usually only program two, maybe three sets per exercise, unless it's more of a strength exercise, like a squat or a deadlift or something like that. But in general, most exercises in my programs, at least the hypertrophy ones, Jack Gazelle, does not really apply to Jack Gazelle, but usually it's two sets. The main reason for this is the second part of this question, four to eight sets building up to a top set. When you're doing two working sets, you're basically doing several sets working up to a top set. You're doing ramp up sets in order to prepare for your top sets. And if you're only doing two sets, you better make those sets count. And there are lots of big advantages to doing lower volume, lower fatigue, less time in the gym, less joint issues for most people. And I have found that when I program two sets for people, it helps them actually go hard enough 
in their working sets in order to get actual good hypertrophy muscle building stimulus. Whereas if I program four or five sets or whatever, a lot of times guys will hold back on those first few sets and maybe they hit, you know, what they think is like one rep in reserve. But generally if you're doing four or five sets, you're not going to be able to do four or five sets with the same weight with a rep in reserve. Just not going to happen. So if you only have two sets, it just makes you a focus on your sets more. You have less, fewer sets to focus on, which is great for, you know, just being able to focus throughout an entire workout. If you're doing 12 sets in a workout, as opposed to 25 sets in a workout, it's a lot easier to focus on 12 hard sets than it is on 25 kind of, kind of hard sets, but not really. So that is the main reason I have two sets for a lot of exercises. You're supposed to ramp up to them and perform your two hard sets very close to failure. And if you are not getting results from doing two sets and you are past like your intermediate stage, then you need to train harder. You'll notice that for like my beginner programs, I have more sets just because beginners aren't able to safely take sets close to failure. So they need more sets in order to get enough stimulus to grow muscle. But once you're past like intermediate, intermediate plus, if you can't get good hypertrophy stimulus, in my opinion, off of two, maybe three sets for most exercises, some exercises, even one set, then you're not training hard enough. Next question, thoughts on more goal paced running, for example, 15 to 20 miles per week, as opposed to more zone two, for example, 40 to 50 miles per week. Yeah. So if you're running 15 to 20 miles per week at goal pace, like say, you know, you're training for a five mile or you're training for a 5k or a 10k or something like that, that is usually excessive for most people. And also you are not making the most out of your overall training. Obviously, if you hit 15 to 20 miles at goal pace, that's way less training time per week. So like that's one advantage, but for most people, they're just not going to be able to withstand that unless they have created a very, very, very robust aerobic base, like a marathon training program. But even marathon runners, you know, they're putting in 80, 90, 100 mile weeks and they might hit 15 to 20 miles per week at a goal pace, like during a peaking phase. So substituting is basically like saying, can I just do half as much zone four and get the same results without doing any zone two or as opposed to doing 40 to 50 miles at zone two, which is just going to take a lot longer, but it's a lot slower. So 15 to 20 miles per week at goal pace is definitely going to be a beast to recover from. And also you're just not getting the aerobic adaptations that you would be by doing a lot of miles at zone two and then a little bit of miles at your goal pace. So maybe for example, if you're putting in a 50 mile week, which is a pretty high week for, you know, a regular person, that's like half marathon mileage, maybe, you know, a high level selection prep and that's rucking and running. But either way, if you're putting in 50 miles total per week, I would say no more than five to eight of those at goal pace. And the rest should probably be at zone two, maybe 10 miles, possibly. Um, what's that one fifth? So 20, that's basically the 80, 20 right there. If you're putting in 10 miles at goal pace, but high weekly mileage when you're going hard, like speed work, 
is the recovery cost to that is just not worth the squeeze. I would strongly recommend doing, maybe you can cut that zone two mileage in half. So what was it? You could do 20 to 25 miles at zone two, and then maybe three to five to seven miles at goal pace. And I think you'd be a lot better off just recovery wise. This is especially the case if you're also doing other training, like if you're doing a hybrid program, if you're doing a hybrid program and putting in 15 to 20 miles a week at goal pace, you're going to be absolutely destroyed. Um, it's just not feasible. The body can't recover from that. Going at zone four slash or like low zone five is significantly more stressful and difficult to recover from than going mostly at zone two and a little bit at zone four and five. So highly recommend combining the two, doing a little bit of speed work and more zone two, you'll notice that, you know, when you're doing mostly zone two, you recover well, it doesn't interfere as much with training. You're not as banged up all the time and you're able to continue progressing. And then yeah, add that speed work in when you can, but unless you are a training for a marathon, in which case you probably wouldn't be asking me this question, unless you're doing that 15 to 20 miles at goal pace is not a very good idea. And if you were doing 15 to 20 miles at goal pace, I would also highly suggest doing another 30, minimum 30, probably 40 to 50 miles per week at zone two and having a very, very good aerobic base where you're getting lots and lots of miles in before you start implementing all that speed work. Next question, thoughts on rucking with a sledge or do you have other recommendations? Yeah, so some people will, when they prep for selection, when you're at selection, you'll have to carry what's called a rubber ducky. It's just a fake rifle. And some people will train for that. They don't really want to carry their ARs around, which understandably, and most people don't have fake rifles. So some people will try and emulate it by carrying a sledgehammer that is approximately the same weight, we'll say like 12 to 15 pounds. And I think this is 100% unnecessary. I don't think in the history of selection, anyone has ever done their train up without a rifle and got to selection and noticed that they just can't handle the, the strain of carrying their rifle. If you are even some semblance of a strong person, if you trained up properly for selection and you are able to do, you know, farmer's carries, if you're able to carry enough load to get through team week, then carrying a rifle should be no issue. You get used to it very quickly. That being said, Plenty of guys have not gotten selected because they leave their rifle behind. It can be when you're stressed out, you're tired, you're hungry, and you've been doing land nav for the last several days and you're just smoked. It can be very easy to forget your rifle. So don't forget your rifle, but that is really just like individual soldier discipline and not a huge issue. So I would say definitely don't worry about carrying a sledge. This is probably a controversial opinion and some other people might tell you to bring a sledge, but if you're blade running that hard, that the fact that you're carrying a rifle in one hand and you can switch hands back and forth is going to potentially cost you your fate at selection, then you're not as prepared as you should be. You're better off focusing on just getting really good at rucking, really good at running and all the other things that are required to get selected not whether you carry a sledgehammer when you're rucking. Next question, what were some of the ways you trained for grip strength? Yeah, so there's no real secret to it. Really anything that forces you to grip things. I 
personally like to do farmer's carries. I like to do suitcase carries. I like to do plate pinches and even plate pinch carries. So basically you chalk up, put some chalk on your hands. You can do it without chalk too, but no big deal if you use chalk. And you just grab uh, maybe a 25 pound plate, like a bumper plate or a 35 pound bumper plate or even a 45 pound bumper plate. And you either stand still uh, for a while until your grip kind of gives out or you, you can walk around with it. You can do grip plate pinch carries. You can do dead hangs. Dead hangs are a great way. You just slowly increase the time that you do your dead hangs every, every time you do them. You can do those very, very often. And the added bonus to dead hangs is that they improve your shoulder health as well. So double win. You can do towel pull-ups. Basically you drape a towel over a pull-up bar. You can do hangs on the towel too, but you can also just do pull-ups on, on the towel and that will require you to really grip and improve your grip strength. You can use the little gripper. I think they're called captains of crush or something like that. You can use that if you want every so often. You can actually use that pretty frequently as long as you're not going too crazy hard. That's the thing about grip is you should train your grip quite often when you're prepping for selection, but you also need to factor in the fact that if you do it too often and too hard and or too heavy, basically if the volume is just too high, you can overdo it pretty easily. So you want to keep things like relatively moderate and you want to work on more grip endurance than grip strength. And I, I like doing high frequency stuff. So maybe once or twice a week, you do some carries. Most of the time carries are moderate load, 40 to 60 pounds, just for a long duration, a few sets of a long duration. You hang from a pull-up bar, basically anytime you think of it, go hang from a pull-up bar. You don't necessarily always have to go to failure, but I would implement some sort of progression. Maybe this week, four days per week, you hang for two sets of 60 seconds. Maybe next week you do four sets of 70 seconds, or you do five days per week, two sets of 60 seconds, something like that. Small increases over time, something that is manageable and scalable. And you just not, you're not just indefinitely increasing it over time. Like it's not necessary to be able to hang from a pull-up bar for like 10 minutes, but you can do all those things. You can also do legless rope climbs. Legless rope climbs are great. You just go really, really slow on a rope. You don't have to have like superhuman grip strength. You do want to have really good grip endurance. So when you're thinking of it, if you are, if you want to build endurance, you want to choose a load that you can hold for a while. You don't want to choose crazy, crazy heavy loads. Like you shouldn't be loading up a hex bar with like 415 pounds and doing farmer's carries often. I mean, you can do those once in a while, but you're not going to have to carry anything like that in your hands at selection. It's usually going to be long duration ammo cans or water cans. And those probably weigh about 50 pounds, but you're just going to carry them for long periods of time. So I would do a lot of carries, a lot of farmer's carries, a lot of suitcase carries, and your grip should be pretty damn good. And then another thing that's also going to be controversial is when you are doing your lifting, I would treat that as not grip training. So when you're doing rows, when you're doing RDLs, when you're doing anything where you have to hold dumbbells, and either pull or if you're holding RDL or dumbbells for lunges or something like that, I would not think of that as grip training and just use straps and then train your grip separately. Because if grip is your limiting factor, everybody's posterior chain. So say you're doing RDLs. I would hope that 
your hamstrings, glutes, lower back, upper back, the muscles that are worked to an extent in an RDL are going to be stronger than your grip. So if you are failing those exercises way before your actual muscles that you're working in those exercises fails because of your grip, you're kind of missing the point of the movement. So I would train grip completely separately when you're doing your actual lifting, you give your grip a little bit of recovery time by using straps or grips and just train grip separately. Because like I said, you can overdo it. And when your grip is super fatigued, it's also often an indicator that you're just, your nervous system is a little bit fatigued and you're not fully recovered. A lot of people will do a grip test to test their athlete's readiness going into a training session. And one indicator that an athlete's not recovered and not primed to perform is that their grip is weaker than their baseline. So all those things should work. And yeah, just think more grip endurance than like extreme grip strength. Next question, best and worst parts of no longer being active duty. I would say the best part is just freedom. When you're in the military for over a decade, I mean, obviously some people are in the military a lot longer than I was in. I was in for about 12 years. You always feel like you have to check in with somebody and get permission to do things because like you're owned by the government and you have your leadership and you always have to, you know, your leadership has to know that you're good and you're, you're fine. You know, obviously I'm not like texting my team sergeant all the time and being like, Hey, I'm good. But you're always kind of like thinking like I am owned by somebody else and I can't a hundred percent have freedom to do what I want right now. And now I'm completely out and it took a little while for me to like actually fully take that all in and grasp the fact that I am literally in charge of my own fate and my own schedule. And obviously I have clients that hold me accountable and I definitely do my best to give them the best service they possibly could ask for and what they paid for. But at the same time, like I'm in charge, I can fuck off all day. I can decide to procrastinate. I can decide to pretend to be busy, procrastinate by doing something that seems productive, but isn't necessarily productive. And I have to be aware of all that, but I actually really like that. I think it's cool to be able to do that. It's a, it's a good feeling to just be in, in charge of your own fate. So basically the freedom to, to do what I want, the freedom to set up my own schedule. I love working early in the morning and just getting most of my important things done right when I get up. And that way I have the rest of the day to kind of decide what I want to do. That is a really good feeling. I used to hate waiting till 9 a.m. to start work. Obviously, a lot of times we started before then. A lot of times I'd go in and get a training session in early in the morning before work, but it's really nice to be able to wake up, get my wits about me, and get most of my important things done early in the morning and be done for the day. So the freedom and the ability to kind of decide my own fate is probably the best thing. The worst is definitely I miss the guys. I absolutely miss working in the team room with my fellow teammates. And I miss being able to go and do cool things and travel to cool places and be a part of something that's like bigger than myself. But there's, you know, a lot of pros to the army. There's a lot of cons to the army. And overall, like I don't miss it enough to, you know, wish I was still there. I'm very, very content with where I'm at right now and wouldn't change a thing. But I also like am really glad that I spent the last 12 years doing that. And I definitely learned a lot about myself, had some great experiences, and it certainly has shaped me as a person. So we'll make this the last question. Thoughts on using belts during heavy compound lifts 
e.g. squats and deadlifts during SF prep. This is probably another controversial thought, but I think it's totally fine to use belts during your compound lifts, as long as you have respect for what you're using the belt for. A lot of people will think that the belt is like some sort of cape that they can just put on and be free to do whatever they want, free to ego lift, free to add too much weight to the bar, free to, you know, load too much weight as if the belt is just going to keep them safe no matter what. And that's not the case. Although a belt will allow you to lift a little bit more weight, and if you use it properly, and if you have a good belt, it will help you brace and potentially make your core a little bit safer. It That all goes out the window if you lose the respect for the belt or you become reliant on it and you really can't do any of your lifts beltless and you just use it as, like I said, a cape. So when you're doing heavy compound lifts for the lower body, no problem using a belt. A lot of people will say, Wearing a belt will weaken your core, but that is actually has been proven by science to not be correct. And also there are 900 pound squatters that wear a belt and I am not hundred percent sure, but I would guess if you can squat 900 pounds and you're wearing a belt for it, I would guess your core is pretty strong. So the use of a belt is something that actually takes a little bit of skill and takes a little bit of knowledge. You have to know how to brace against the belt. It's different to brace without a belt than it is to brace with a belt. Basically you are bracing out into the belt. If you think of like your core as like a soda can that's like squished before you go into a lift, you want to make sure that soda can is completely full of air and round on all sides and pushing out into that belt. That will provide you with a lot of core strength and core stability and make you stronger in that lift. So there's nothing wrong with wearing a belt. I would definitely make sure that you're wearing a belt that is that you put some thought into. A lot of people wear these belts that have that are really thin in the front and they're thicker in the back. They're like the bodybuilding belt. You'll see a lot of bodybuilders walk around the gym wearing a belt for their entire workout. I think that's really dumb because they think it's going to shrink their waist. But in reality, it's literally atrophying their waist. So if you want less muscle in your waist, cool. But that's kind of a tangent, but either way, yeah, when you're choosing a belt, especially if you're just doing it for, like you said, squats and deadlifts, you want to look for like a powerlifting belt. I think like 13 millimeter belt, it should literally look the same in the front as it does in the back, as far as like thickness and width and all that. It shouldn't be tapered. Certain Olympic lifting belts are like made out of cloth. You can wear those if you want. If you do a lot of Olympic lifts, it's a little easier to do cleans and snatches wearing that than it is an actual powerlifting belt. But if you're just doing it for squats and deadlifts, I highly recommend getting a powerlifting belt. And there are multiple different styles of belts. There's like double prong belts. There's single prong belts, basically the little clip that you put through the hole to tighten it down. There's lever belts. I personally have been using a stoic belt. The brand is stoic and it's a single prong and it's pretty basic. I've been using it for a while and I love it. I'm a huge fan. I used to have an Inzer belt, but that got stolen in Afghanistan. And those are basically the only two belts I've ever had, but there are definitely some good ones. There are some absolutely trash ones. If you're getting your belt at Dick's Sporting Goods, you can probably rest assured that it is not a very good belt and you're probably better off not using it, but you can get them online for under hundred bucks and they're solid. So definitely use a belt if you want to, but just respect it and realize that it's not 
your get out of jail free card and that it's not necessarily safer and that you have to use it properly. And you probably shouldn't use it every single time you train. You should probably do some beltless training as well. That way you learn how to brace without wearing a belt. And again, let the controversy begin. Some people are going to probably disagree with that. But again, I don't think anyone has ever not gotten selected because they decided to wear a belt. You got to think of these things on like the big picture level. So you ask this question as someone who is preparing to go to selection. Do I think that if you choose to wear a belt or not wear a belt for your squats and deadlifts is going to decide your fate? for selection or have anything to do with deciding your your fate for selection. So long as sometimes you don't wear a belt and you know how to brace without wearing a belt. Absolutely not. Just like the rifle thing, the sledgehammer. If your fate at selection is decided by the fact that you wore a belt and you shouldn't have for your squats and your deadlift training as you prepared, then you were way too much on the fence anyway. So wear a belt if you want, don't wear a belt if you don't want to. Um, you don't have to like get as strong as humanly possible. You shouldn't be like following like a powerlifting plan before you go to selection or anything like that, but there's nothing wrong with wearing a belt for your training. And that really goes for pretty much anyone, whether you're prepping for selection or not, if you enjoy wearing a belt and you use it properly and you don't ego lift because of it, and you understand that it's not this get out of jail free card that is going to automatically keep your back healthy, no matter what and you don't load way too much weight on the bar and lift with a really bad form because you have this belt on, then there's nothing wrong with wearing a belt. So that's it. That is the last question. Thank you guys for tuning in. Hope everyone has a Merry Christmas and we'll be back soon before January 1st. Sometime next week, I'll have another episode. So thanks guys. Later. Thank you for listening. If you like this show and want to start crushing your goals, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And for more fitness content, follow me on Instagram at Terminator underscore training or check out my website, TerminatorTraining.com. All right, guys, Terminator out.